0: Rachel Hutchison is the VP of Global Social Responsibility at Blackbod. Now, if you work in the not-for-profit space, you know Blackbod. I swear the first three years of my career, in not-for-profit were spent buried in Blackbaud's CRM system. You may have heard of it, razor's edge for all my not-for-profit geeks out there. Rachel leads the company's social impact investments and sustainability, helping 3,100 plus associates be agents of good. She built Blackbod's corporate social responsibility program from the ground up, leveraging her experience and working at the intersection of business and not-for-profits. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's an intersection I'm quite fascinated in. I was introduced to Rachel from Melochoa, whom you've heard from before, our season two partner from the Social Innovation Summit. And I thought for this episode, I'd pass the virtual mic over to him to personally introduce Rachel. It has been a pleasure getting to know Rachel over the last few years as I've been involved with the Social Innovation Summit. BlackBot has done a tremendous amount in the community, and the social good community, with nonprofit, individual change makers, and community-based organizations. The, the phrase that comes to mind when I think of Rachel is moving the needle. She is truly on the front lines of the work, meeting people, connecting, thinking of something new, just always energetic. I'm excited about her episode. Well, without further ado, let's bring Rachel on. How does the activist land the corporate dollars to make change? How does the child lead a movement? Hello, Greta, anyone? And how did the millennial convince the boomer? What do these situations have in common? They had make-or-break moments where influence was created and light bulbs went off. I'm Rebecca Nedelik, and this is Nuance of Impact, a podcast to get lost in the stories of those making change. Together, we'll chat, learn, and ponder the nuanced make-or-break moments that make social impact so impactful. Hello, Rachel. How's it going? Uh, It's going well. Happy to be here. Oh, thank you so much for making time for us today. Rachel Hutchison is the Vice President of Corporate Citizenship and Philanthropy for Blackbaud. Um, so Rachel, for those of us who don't know a lot about Blackbaud, can you tell us a little bit about Blackbaud?
1: Sure. So Blackbod is a technology provider. We're actually the world's leading cloud software provider working in the world of social good. So what that means is we provide... Um, software products that are specifically for individuals, all different kinds of nonprofits, grant-making foundations, and companies. And we do what we call um, powering an ecosystem of good. So this, we do a lot of work in helping to power fundraising and philanthropy, and also helping social good organizations, nonprofits, charities, et cetera, just um, do the good work that they do.
0: Awesome. And how long have you been with Blackboard?
1: I have been at Blackboard an amazingly long time, so 29 years. I started um, really right out of grad school. We were really small, and I just had the fortune of working um, with a company that's been growing and evolving um, all this time.
0: And your background, like what led you to working in this space?
1: So when it was happening, I'm not sure I completely understood it. Um, but when I look back, it makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, looking back, I grew up with parents who were super involved in volunteerism and and you know what we would now call social good activities. They were very into sustainability and you know, all sorts of different things. And so I just kind of inherently had that in me. Um, but I actually um, believe it or not, met the founder of the company um uh, because he sponsored my soccer team. He, he's <laughs> um it was he is British. And he founded Blackboard, a huge soccer fan. And I played in, in college and we met each other. And he said, hey, you have some interesting skills. Why don't you come and, and work for this company? And I was like, oh, OK, great. I was 24. I was obnoxious. I said that I would leave when I got bored. And that was 29 <laughs> years ago. So um not bored you yet. Know, uh, no, uh, I am not bored. That is definitely not something that happens at Blackboard, you know, because we just, At that point, we were providing um, hardware and software to just nonprofit organizations. And what we do has expanded and how we do it has expanded, but we're still very true to being about technology and innovation for social good organizations.
0: That's good. I feel like, um, especially amongst like a millennial demographic. So, you know, w- when in that age frame, the 2024 20, Rachel, I think it's pretty standard for people to get bored and be ready to move on when they get bored. So it's pretty impressive that you've stayed with the organization that long and yeah. sort of found a stride there. And did you always work in the social good um, sort of citizenship and philanthropy area? no and it's funny because
1: like millennials always say oh yeah yeah I get that it's like well I'm a Gen Xer and I think some of it's just age like when you're <laughs> young and you get out of grad school you yeah. think you know everything and mm-hmm. yeah I, I really am um, that I didn't know myself back then um, and you learn a lot along the way but um, you know I didn't intend to, to be working in this space I just kind of um, stepped into it and I realized, oh, wow, there's this huge world of organizations that are doing all these amazing things and I can actually um, do good things in the world and mm-hmm. also have that be my paid job, which early on I thought was just hilarious that that was possible. <laughs> but, you know, the whole world has evolved around that idea and we even have the Business Roundtable and Larry Fink and all these people now saying um, that business has a really important role in society. And I just got to see that evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started, I was hired, um, I would come out of journalism school. And so I had a, the ability to research, write and edit, find things out, convey information. And I took that and my project management skills and built a lot of the pieces that were in marketing,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: for a hundred, 100 person company. So I started our PR, I used to run our events, I did all these things. And then, um, as I went along, managed a lot of the brand what we would now call brand relationships for the company mm-hmm. and our our founder was very philanthropic and when he um, retired after we got a private investment and we went public we needed to do some care and feeding around our programs and
2: mm-hmm. I was
1: like oh let me do that so I kind of took different things on and evolved them into a full CSR role mm-hmm. but as I said at the beginning it's a journey so um, we keep Adding to how we show up as a socially responsible company. I mean, just mm-hmm. two weeks ago, we became a participant in the UN Global Compact. We just made an investment in um, being more formal around releasing ESG data. So, like you, cool. it's this, this constant evolution
0: mm-hmm. of how
1: you actually um, realize that desire to be socially responsible.
0: Yeah. When you think and be, on that, when you think about companies that are truly, you know, socially responsible doing social impact, what do you think makes a company truly impactful?
1: Well, first of all, you, you got to have good leadership. If you don't have good leadership, you're not going to get there, but I know that's kind of a grand statement.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think that you really have to have, um, your focus on being socially responsible as a part of your strategy. And, and if you, you check with the pundits in the field, they'll say this, You can't just say, oh, we are, but our strat- business strategy is something different. So mm-hmm. it's got to be in your strategy. It's got to be um, in your you know, your vision mission, higher purpose. Um, it's got to be a part of why people come to work with you. Um, it's got to be a part of how you drive positive results. So it kind of it has to be baked into that system versus something yeah. that is on the side. I used to say that, um, many companies would have kind of like the, the give back function down the street and around the corner, and they would trot it out when they want to say something positive. And instead, this is a part of, you know, how we hire, how we engage people, how we, the customers we work with, the products we deliver, how we operate, it's all connected.
0: Mm -hmm. I always find like people, so I come from a not-for-profit background, um, very familiar with Razor's Edge, which I know is sort of that, you know. That black bot. And would you say Bla- Razor's Edge is, for those who don't know, Razor's Edge is kind of like a CRM system. It is for it's donors. a relationship
1: management system, a CRM system for nonprofits. Um, and mo- it's the most well-known product that BlackBot has, for sure.
0: Totally. And so when you, when I think about like working in, you know, the not-for-profit space now in corporate social responsibility, um, there's always those companies that I feel like folks um, like yourself and myself that work in this space, we always kind of look up to these organizations that are just, they're killing it. Like they're doing such a good job, corporate or not-for-profit personally for you, like, is who do you look up to from the corporate perspective? What company do you find is just like, just killing it?
1: Oh, geez. You know, that is such a hard
0: question to answer. Um, and maybe, it, maybe it, I won't say overall, but even just like whether it's a campaign or something that, you know,
1: yeah, well, there's so many different components and, and companies can be really complex. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that um, one of the things that I work on is our social responsibility reporting and our, our ESG reporting. And we love the Adobe report. I love that mm-hmm. report. I love how they tell their story, I love how they package their information. Mm-hmm. Um, we use workday internally and i like a lot about what workday does so mm-hmm. sometimes it's different pieces
0: agreed yeah. um
1: i also it's easier to love some of the consumer products because you're just like yes. feel connected like we were talking about our water bottles that we have i have a Swell bottle i love that um mm-hmm. i love Ch- and that's a, it's just such a great brand it's a great product
0: sorry say health. that one
1: again which brand was that chobani, the chobani. yogurt ah the whole, um, founding, you know, the, the leader, um, is Turkish. He has made a an intention of hiring immigrants. He mm-hmm. has turned around, um, the town, there's a town in New York where Chabani started where, you know, he bought an old factory and, mm-hmm. you know, basically kind of brought a community back to life. And so there are a lot of those little smaller, it was small, probably not small mm-hmm. now, but consumer brands, you can almost, um touch them and feel them a little more than, um, than things that are, um, a little more abstract or services.
0: Yeah. I really, I, I resonate with that. I think something that I even think about a lot in, you know, my CSR role is, um, is tangibility, right? Like that tangibility of, of, um, the tangibility of like making a difference and what you look at that from like a donor perspective or from a consumer perspective where you're consuming a brand, whether by buying their products or using their services. And I always find it interesting, um, companies, you know, like Blackbaud that, that technology isn't always that tangible, right? You can't see it, feel it, touch it. Um, we had talked a little bit in our, you know, pre-discussion before our interview today about um, sort of the face of giving and how it sort of changed and sort of the relationship with like that transaction that happens between when somebody makes a donation or consumes a product or a brand. Um, what do you, what do you think about that? Like, how does that sort of play out in, in your work? And um,
1: yeah. Well, so you know, we power an ecosystem of goods. So we're providing that technology that's almost white labeled behind a nonprofit's brand. So mm-hmm. if we're doing our job well, the donor doesn't know that we are helping that organization with their technology pieces and whether they're um, making a donation to their mobile device, which is increasingly popular or on a website or even writing a check or mm-hmm. that, that we're behind that. Our job is to help the nonprofit empower its own story and to, to connect and engage with other people. Um, so that's one thing. So you wouldn't really know us as a donor. You, we're, we're that provider to the um, to the actual organization for the most part. Um, but when people give, it's kind of similar. So people are giving and they're getting psychic benefit. They're, they're yeah. donating to a nonprofit. They're not getting um, you know, a cup of Greek yogurt or a pair of socks or something because they purchase something. They're investing in the organization and the belief that the organization will be able to provide services toward a certain cause.
2: Yeah,
1: and a lot of giving is very emotional. I mean, there's the whole discussion yeah. about whether tax benefits help or not, but people give because they are moved to do so, um, mm-hmm. because they care about the cause, because you know, my mother had lymphoma. And so, you know, I could be very passionate about that cause. She had Mm -hmm. ovarian cancer. You know, I have a rescue animal, like things are, we just made a donation today from our company to help with the winter storm relief in Texas and the surrounding states. So there are so many reasons to give, but emotion is a big one. And so, although technology is critically important to kind of be that digital equipment, you know, digital play to make it all happen. The storytelling of the organization is important too, because you're, you're, you're kind of competing for mindshare, the donor's Mm -hmm. mindshare to connect with that opportunity. Like why this organization versus another one?
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That story, that emotion side of things, I think during the pandemic, especially it's really shifted things. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we even talk about like, the role of events per se, Mm -hmm. um, especially from a not-for-profit perspective, like being able to show up and and really get that emotional transaction, that psychic benefit, as you said, um, it's really changed. Community is, is sort of redefined in this new pandemic stage, um, of our world right now. What do you, what are you sort of seeing in the space around, um, that emotional transaction, that psychic benefit where we are now in sort of this pandemic time? So are you talking about
1: a company and the company's employees or are you talking about donors? And not I think let's
0: talk about it from a donor perspective. Yeah, so um,
1: we definitely see that giving is resilient. You know we just mm-hmm. had a report that came out which we may touch on in a bit,
2: mm-hmm. that
1: shows that giving was resilient in 2020 and that was really great news. Um, we come from a really generous um, community, you know, mm-hmm. whether you're talking about, the U.S. or are you talking about North America? You're talking about the world. People do give. <clears throat> Excuse me, but um, this year was interesting because you almost have to look at it in segments throughout mm-hmm. the the year because the beginning of the year, the first quarter, if you will, was actually a strong quarter in terms of of donors, of people giving, Um, even if you're just looking, I'm based in the U.S., but looking at U.S. data, I know that to be true. The last two weeks of March, it completely fell off a cliff because what happened the last two weeks of March?
0: Pandemic, COVID-19.
1: Harvard and MIT went online, The NBA canceled its season, like all this stuff happened at that period. And then the second quarter, it was right there, that's April, May, June, all these major events were planned and organizations couldn't pivot fast enough to know what to do. So they just got canceled. So philanthropy took a real hit
0: Hmm. in the
1: second quarter but by the third quarter, we were starting to see that things were getting a little better because um, nonprofits were figuring it out. They were being resilient, which they tend to be. And they were also more quickly adapting to digital tools. So that's kind of interesting to see because they already have a lot of digital tools, but that doesn't mean that they actually leveraged them. Yeah. So, you know, technology um, in the nonprofit world, the nonprofits tend to be more of a lagging adopter. There are slower adopters of technology. Interesting. And so COVID and, you know, everything that happened, um, you know, social justice, all the stuff that happened in 2020 kind of pushed organizations to better use what they had already. So Mm -hmm. we saw a real push for our customers. Just can you help educate me and help me understand all the stuff I have at my disposal that I didn't necessarily use before because we always did these events in person. And now we're going to do this event online. Mm -hmm. Um, How do do I do that? Mm -hmm. And so by the third quarter, we saw them actually doing that and taking a real leap in how much they were doing online because all of a sudden people got over this kind of refusal to believe that that you could do things screen to screen, that things mm-hmm. had to be done in person. So it mm-hmm. created a lot of innovation, which I think was kind of cool. And donors definitely responded by, um, one of the pieces of data in the, the report that we had that just came out is that um, online giving went up 21%. And yeah.
0: that's just mm-hmm.
1: huge because basically, it's because that's how everybody was giving. Like yeah. it, it makes total sense. Um, It always, the ability to do it always existed, um, but it went up 21% compared to 2019.
0: Hmm. And that
1: it just, you know, it just all connects.
0: Yeah. So you're sort of saying like, despite the pandemic, despite everything that's happened, it's sort of just been a shift in channels for giving um, rather than-
1: Yeah, both channels and, um, actual giving. So we charitable giving report just came out, um, week or earlier this week. And this is an annual study we do of about 8,000 organizations that use our technology. It's about $40 billion worth of giving. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: and it's really the first report that comes out each year in the sector that says, how did we do the previous year? The, the big report, the one that, that, um, we actually helped to fund the more very. um, uh, um, supportive of is called Giving USA. And again, that is just the US, um, comes out in June. And that's based on all the IRS filings. And so that mm. account- last year accounted for uh, $449 billion in giving. But oh, this report is the first check to see well, how were things? And giving was up 2%, which sounds mm. small. But giving usually is up a single set of digits. Okay. Um, And it was 2020, you know, compared to 2019, which was a strong year, Mm -hmm. giving was actually up again. And so Mm -hmm. thinking about that, falling off a cliff in the first quarter, kind of bottoming out, getting better in the third quarter. What that means is by the end of the year, things were getting a lot better and they were getting Mm -hmm. a lot better because donors kept supporting things. Nonprofits were adopting digital the way they never had before. Mm-hmm. Um, people were just, you know, doing it instead of saying, oh, we have to stop and wait until we're in person. It does vary by sector within mm-hmm. the nonprofit sector. Some groups have struggled more than others.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but the news is um it's something to be happy about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it's it's sort of COVID was really like a rallying cry to stand up and support community in new and different ways. So it's interesting to see that there was such a, a sh- well, and I guess not not interesting. It it makes sense that there was such a shift to push for technology. Um, you know, it's it's sort of like millennials are no longer the cool generation anymore. Um, I remember the shift last year. I was at a conference and. We we're talking about it was always millennials, 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 and now it's Gen Z, like Gen Zers, Gen Zers, like they're you know millennials don't matter anymore. And I'm like, dang it, I'm a millennial, like I want to matter. But besides, do you think that future generations are going to give in the same way? Like especially thinking about that tangibility side. Tangibility is changing.
1: Yeah, and it's funny. I'm a Gen Xer, and the i I'm the generation that nobody ever talked about. They talked about <laughs> the boomers because the boomers were the ones who held all the wealth. It was yes. going to get transferred and then then they talked about the millennials because it was the biggest generation ever and we're in the middle here like what about us um so um millennials are actually first of all you know i think the oldest millennial is maybe late 30s yeah and so many more of them are now married with children like getting into a different phase in life Mm -hmm. but gen Zers are interesting in particular, because each generation is even more native to technology and, Mm -hmm. you know, does things differently than the previous generation. Like my kids don't even know what checks are, you know, you have to teach them, you know, how to read a regular clock, you know, things that they would just never, your clock is on your phone. You know, you, there are all these things that, that growing up as I did, I'm 53 have changed in my life that are very different for them. But
0: makes there me think really... that, it makes me think that, like, I wonder if there'll be a point when someone gets a $10 bill and says like, what is this? Like, what is this? <laughs> what is this piece of paper or piece of plastic?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, there's almost, um, you know, the whole question about like coins, you know, mm. my kids have never really used coins much because, mm. you know, you pay for things on credit cards or bills and yeah. the smallest thing that comes out of a bank machine is a 20. And Anyway, things are changing in terms of generosity. This is something the Giving Institute, which is the group that does the Giving USA report, focuses on and is spinning up something called the Generosity Commission to look Mm. at what really is happening in the world of giving and volunteering and social behavior um, today. Mm. And this is focused on the U.S. for now. But it's it's interesting because there are a lot of activities that you might observe around you
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, by younger people or other people who like, I have two Gen Zers as kids. And so I'm mm-hmm. very influenced by them. People want to go help people, yeah. not just organizations. And and in doing that, you're not actually being charitable. The IRS mm-hmm. in the U.S. doesn't count that as a charitable activity. So interesting. there are ways things are defined and done. Um, and codified that don't align now with how people actually behave. So
0: Hmm.
1: um, something we're calling like replacement behaviors. What are the replacement behaviors that give you that same kind of pro-social feeling that aren't the same as traditional giving and volunteering?
0: Hmm.
1: We actually saw this within my own company that when COVID hit, the first thing that happened is that many of our employees said, how do I help this person? not how do I give to a cause to help, you know, give to the food bank, incredibly important thing to do, but how do I help this person? So we actually expanded our policies and said, we're going to count service to other people as volunteerism. You don't have to go serve with a nonprofit. If you want to help your elderly neighbor get groceries, if you want to do something that's just to help another person, please go do that. Go be an agent of good. And it pushed us to kind of expand how we were thinking about things Yeah. Because why is it that it's only charitable if it's to an organization? So it's it's kind of pushing the boundaries a bit.
0: Yeah. That's actually really interesting too, because the the like our society as we become more ingrained in technology, whether it's social media or ordering our groceries, like the amount of interest, and especially in COVID, your your interactions with other human beings has actually become quite limited. Right. Like Mm -hmm. the amount of times that you will see somebody else. And so I I remember at the beginning of COVID noticing, I live in an older area, more central in the city I live in. And I, I don't, we're not, we're not suburban, like we're not in a suburban area. And so we we don't have a lot of families and kids and stuff around in, in the neighborhood. And for the first time ever, I saw people like walking their dogs and out and about engaging in their neighborhoods in ways they hadn't before. And so it really sort of, you know, it took a micro approach from a macro concept of community is our city, or, you know, it's this demographic down to who lives next door to you. And, um, and how do you engage with the people that really are from a, from a distance perspective, closest to you. So that's pretty, that's fascinating that you guys made that shift. Yeah,
1: it is fascinating. You know, Robert Putnam wrote a book many years ago now called Bowling Alone and it was
2: mm.
1: how the world had shifted from being a, at a time when like when I was a kid people belonged to civic clubs and bowling yes. leagues and and sat on their front porches in the summer and talked to their neighbors and then now everybody has air conditioning, everyone's inside streaming something. Mm. We don't know our neighbors and we don't belong to things. And mm. we are all super connected through technology, but also we can use that same technology to, as a barrier to keep yeah. us even like in an airport. Oh no, don't talk to me because I'm on my phone with my AirPods in or whatever it is. Yeah. And COVID actually pushed us to do exactly what you said. I know everybody's house improvement and every person in this neighborhood. Cause I walk every single day. I know mm. who has what dog and who's adopted whom and all of that stuff. Yeah. Which is, which is helpful, but, um, it's made me realize how isolated we've all gotten and I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of belonging.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: there's a, a woman who whose firm did a study on belonging and it showed that today, people have very few close friends, and they actually mm-hmm. look to their companies to create connection and meaning in their lives. And during COVID, like it or not, a lot of us were looking to the leaders of our companies to provide guidance because we weren't necessarily like, "Do you? who do you look to and who do you look to in, in mm-hmm. other parts of society to provide that leadership. And the company's role, like you see with the Edelman Trust Barometer, the trust in companies is up. So here we mm-hmm. are, like, all connected because we're in a neighborhood, but not knowing each other and looking to our companies. Really interesting and it puts mm-hmm. a burden on the company or, or maybe I should say a responsibility on the company yeah. to identify or see that whole person who comes into your door virtually or, you know, figuratively or literally and recognize them and then help them feel connected and known and supported um, in a world that's really very
0: isolated. hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting as well, because we moved to a virtual environment, right? Like this is, people are looking to their companies for direction, for a way to stay connected in a time where we're not walking the same halls anymore. Like no, and
1: many will not ever go back to doing that. And and many don't want to, we've Mm -hmm. embraced a workforce strategy. That's, that's more flexible and virtual post COVID.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: and that's really exciting for a lot of people, but at the same time, we have to think about connectedness and how do we get to know each other? Want, you know, Often our people um, who volunteer say they really want to volunteer as teams to get to know each other, to engage, to be social, Mm -hmm. to do good together. And so we're Mm -hmm. looking for new and different ways to help them do that virtually, which is harder.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the piece about having your employees engage, say in their neighborhoods or, you know, in their communities, whether that's their children's schools or um, I don't know, the soccer league, it's really about like, it's a different way of stepping up, right? Because before your only avenue to do that was through COVID, but COVID also made the strifes and adversity that, you know, those members of your community were facing more apparent because more people were dealing with it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now
1: people engage... Um, In their own communities where their kids go to school, where they worship, Mm -hmm. um, where they play sports. And, you know, my company has always been really supportive of choice and employee choice and and supporting as many things as we can through our matching gift program and our volunteerism programs. Um, So the employee chooses what cause is important to to that person. Mm -hmm. Um, And we try not to prescribe on top of that. Um, oh, just care about X issue. Cause it's what's important to the company that doesn't work anymore. People want to be seen as, um, as individuals.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's actually really interesting because there's obviously such this huge mandate in corporate giving on employee engagement, employee citizenship, um, huge area of focus. And I mean, I think it often comes down to like those HR metrics, things like retention and employee, ac- I shouldn't say acquisition, employee recruitment, um, where do you sort of see that connection between like the employee citizenship and the corporate mandate for social purpose? Like I've always sort of, you know, you sort of get the connection, but I I like the piece where you're saying like individuality is recognized. And I think in our modern world where inclusivity and equity is so important, um, it's really important to allow people the choice to show up in their communities in a way that they see fit.
1: Yeah, I see, I think those are deeply connected. there is a natural tension um, with one piece, and that's if you are a company that's trying to show that you're driving impact on a specific social issue. Yeah, it is very hard to do that if you're also embracing employee choice, mm-hmm. because employee choice diffuses your ability to make impact in one place. So if you say, mm-hmm. "I really want to move the needle on," you know, a very specific, you know, maternal well-being in a specific way, you've got to have everybody supporting that. And you're going to have a key partnership to do that. Hmm. Um, I think there is a a way to be thoughtful about both needs. Um, We as a company, because we work with so many different organizations, really try not to pick a favorite child. We're all about embracing choice. And we think that that's, and we've heard from our people, that's what they want. They want us to you know, ask them when they come in the door, what do you care about? They want us to listen. And then they want us to give them avenues to engage that, that help them and help connect them with community, but that never forget that they have individual choice. So we actually, for example, match gifts um, to anything except working on behalf of a political candidate. That's a very rare stance, but I think it's, something that more companies are going to be pushed to do as people say, well, wait a minute, why are you only matching gifts to education? Yeah. Well, because that's what the company cares about. Well, but, but I'm a part of the company. I am the company. Yeah. So as the, the company starts really coming more to terms with what's called the employer brand, you know, mm-hmm. why, what's the proposition for the employee to come work for you mm-hmm. and how do you engage them? I talk about, you know, what you need is you need a mixed portfolio. You you know, yeah. we have programs that are completely about choice. Mm. Employees, you, you know, you make the choice, company dollars will follow. And then we have others where the company makes the decision but it's not a really top-down enforced um, mechanism. In mm. the older days of corporate America, there were more examples of the boss picking a cause yeah. and having a campaign. But that was also because there wasn't, we didn't have iPhones to pick up where we could, you know, just make a gift directly to an organization. There yeah. were different mechanisms to actually have money flow through um, mm-hmm. to support nonprofits. And, yeah. but I think it's going to be more of a, well, yeah, we have a corporate campaign and here's yeah. some options in the corporate campaign, but then here's how you can actually engage too.
0: that's where I, I see us heading. It's interesting you say that. It kind of reminds me, especially like social purpose right now, because social purpose is, I think, sort of very directive and typically asking companies or directing companies to make a decision on where they want to make an impact, right? You have your social purpose, um, overarching broad statement, and then you have a few pillars within it um, in terms of impact areas. I really, I really think it's fat. And then the parallel to that is almost the example that I thought of when you were speaking was voter turnout in the States. Like you saw companies, you know, taking a stand, encouraging people to go out and vote. That was like a big area of focus really focused on employee behavior, right. Kind of like employee citizenship, having people engage as advocates in their community to show up and simply be engaged. Um, And so the, the measurement mechanism is almost different rather than saying, you know, we've created whatever, these chronic disease behavior change adjustments to make sure that people all across the United States are less likely to contract diabetes. Instead, you're saying, we've supported 20,000 employees to be engaged members of their communities. And yeah. that could be related to all these different causes. Um, but it begs the question, like, is it more than not-for-profits mandate to report on like the impact area rather than the company's impact, right?
1: Yeah, I think it's both, but you, you raise a really interesting question and what you're trying to accomplish drives Mm -hmm. you to what you're trying to measure or vice versa, start with the metric in mind. And, you know, you could say a company is going to measure its impact by the way it impacts a specific SDG, a Sustainable Development Goal. That we're focused on, for for example, SDG number four, and this is what we do to help move the needle in that metric. And if you read our social responsibility report, you'll see that we do talk using SDG language in terms of how we, the company, directly are giving. Mm -hmm. Um, We do that. Mm -hmm. But you know, at the same time, a lot of our um, CSR initiatives are really about employee wellness, employee engagement. Yeah. And so we evaluate the success of those programs based on data from our employee engagement survey, data mm. from our diversity inclusion survey. Like, so you have to match the right metric yeah. um, to what it is you're, you're, the outcome you're trying to drive. Them. Mm-hmm. and it isn't just about the social issues social issues are really important
0: mm-hmm. but
1: in a world where people really want to have voice
0: yeah it's you got to think about
1: you know how you do that totally
0: yeah it, and also like every we're in a position now where imp, every person sort of also wants a platform right like your identity is manifested in things like social media where you're developing a brand or you're creating you're creating an identity, right? So it's it also, from a not-for-profit perspective, it could sort of level that power dynamic that exists for, um, for donors when you're thinking about stewardship and recognition for people who are making gifts. Like if you have a, an employee, let's say they're making, you know, between thirty dollars and $50,000 a year, but they have an ability to give through the company they work for. They're, they're able to have that emotional transaction and making a donation to a cause that they care about, they will be recognized by that not-for-profit, that charitable partner, um, versus that same employee that's making, you know, that same amount of money, but isn't able to give. And so it's almost like, is that employee who isn't able to give still deserving of that recognition for being involved in the community? I, I would argue that BlackBot's sort of allowing them to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, companies are... The way I think about it is, mm-hmm. I you know I think of companies as conveners of people. Yeah. So hmm. you know, in the old days, there was the model that you would have a campaign and it would come from the top down and it would be done, and a company would say this company is committing to X amount of money to a certain campaign, and yeah. and that could get kind of command and control and directive, and make yeah. people want more choice. They want to believe what they believe. They have the right to believe what they believe, and to give to what they want to give to, and have that choice. But at the same time, they don't necessarily know where to look Mm. and how to get plugged in, how to engage. And so they're looking to the company in this world where they're a little more isolated to connect them and plug them in. Mm. And so as a convener of people, the company is bringing people together to serve, to engage, to educate them, to open their eyes about Mm. the community, but then in our mind, it's about, we're doing that not to drive them toward a specific cause or SDG even, Mm -hmm. it's to help them realize their own roles as agents of good in their lives. Mm. Even if they leave the company and move on, how are you going to go do that and take with you this idea that you can make an impact in this world and you should engage in this world? Mm. Um, So it's like, you know, cultivating certain um, positive behaviors that we just think are, are really good. We believe in service. We have about a quarter of our employees serve on nonprofit boards. We think that's really valuable um, for them and for how much mm-hmm. they learn about leadership and development, as well as the service that they give to nonprofits. So it's, it's all kind of, it's very interconnected.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is interconnected. And I think it's, you know, in, in, in this like 2021 era. And I think like, it's interesting because like you said, when COVID happened, um, you know, the pause, fear, insecurity, job loss, like those things were top of mind giving kind of stopped. Then this huge surge of, from a corporate perspective, investment into community, right? Like every company was sort of stepping up if they had the means to make a large gift to some, you know, charitable, charitable cause. And then social justice movement, um, happened around Black Lives Matter, again, a big surge of investment. And now we're sort of at this time where it's like COVID is still here. Like we're still in this. And so I think these questions about like, what does tangibility now look like? What does giving now look look like? What is the new generation saying about giving? Like these are sort of, they're those lines that are being drawn, but some of them are still kind of gray. And I think we're probably going to continue to draw them more clearly in the next six months or so.
1: Yeah. And I mean, everybody wants to know immediately, Yes, um, you know, what was the impact of COVID on XYZ? And so like this report we were just talking about is great because at least gives us a first view. Yeah. But you know, we still don't really deeply understand what the implications of the tax changes in the U.S. the previous year have on giving. Now, like mm-hmm. we need years of data to really dig into it. And we need new research. This The Generosity Commission, which I mentioned, which I'm a part of the working committee for,
2: mm-hmm. is
1: trying to really understand what is actually happening in generosity today and giving and volunteering mm-hmm. and other kinds of behavior. What are the gaps in knowledge? How do we fill those gaps so that we can then understand how to encourage the, the the positive behavior? And if we don't even really understand the way people are behaving today, then how can we do that? We know it's different from yesterday because, and years ago, because they didn't have the same tools, they didn't um, yeah. engage the same way. Um, you couldn't give a gift online, um, mm-hmm. so. You know, it is a, we, we know enough to know that we don't have a full understanding right now and we need yeah. to get it in order to have the right policies and principles going forward.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. When, if you could provide any advice to sort of, you know whether it's the donor or the employee that's seeking to give back. Um, one thing that, you know, is so clear about you, Rachel is that you're like, you're very ingrained in the data and you have this clear understanding of sort of all these different areas that are working together knowing what you know what would be your advice to people who are wanting to give back um whether from an employee they're an employee in a company or they are a donor themselves
1: i would say that um number one no no gift amount is too small there's a real focus on um wealth and the wealth Mm -hmm. gap um And it's pretty shocking, you know, how few people own such great wealth compared Mm -hmm. to the rest in the the world. But no gift is too small. And if you are passionate about a cause, like you should really give to something that, that makes you feel really good about making Mm -hmm. that donation. And you should do enough research to understand that if you're giving to it, it's going to help in some way.
2: Mm -hmm. Ask
1: whatever questions you want, Um, ask how you can get involved. But your you know money is almost like a vote it's your donation is is this democratizing activity you're engaging and um supporting something that you care about um so no gift is too small and choose what's right for you don't let someone else tell Mm -hmm. you what's right um Because it does matter. As as you said, it's almost like a part of our identity now, who we support, what causes we carry, who we share within our own networks, who we're proud to say, I supported this and this is why. It's Mm. much more personal feeling, I think, than it ever has been before.
0: Mm. That's perfect. Rachel, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I so enjoyed hearing all your knowledge and wisdom about the (laughs) sector and about social good as a whole. So thank you so much. You
1: are very welcome. Thank you for having me. This has been great.
0: Season two would not be possible without our season two partner, the Social Innovation Summit. I can't tell you how honored I've been to work with the Social Innovation Summit team on this season. They're just a really great group of folks, people who are real innovators in the space. So what is the Social Innovation Summit? It is this annual global convening of true black swans and wayward thinkers. A lot of summits explore things like big ideas. The Social Innovation Summit brings together people who are hungry, not just to talk about the next big thing, but honestly, truly partner and build it. It's free this year, and it's coming up fast June 8th to 10th. There's a link in the bio description to register. No games. It's legitimately free. You can follow Nuance of Impact on Instagram. Episodes come out every Wednesday, and we will see you next week. Bye for now.